1: We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine.
0: Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 290. Our storytelling series continues today with Pirates of the Caribbean, part one.
1: We do have to say that it's part one because just based on the information that we have today, we anticipate having to do several parts to cover everything, which is super exciting. But before we jump into all that, we do want to mention our travel agent sponsor for this episode, our friend Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations. If you're looking to come to Florida or California, if you're going to Disney, Universal, SeaWorld, anywhere else, you can go to littlebitofdisney.com and there you'll find a quick form that you're gonna fill out with the information that you know about your trip. And then shortly after that, Hannah will be in contact with you There's no cost to use her service. It's totally free, and it's going to make your life way easier. And then as an added bonus, she's just super nice, and you'll love working with her. So again, that's littlebitofdisney.com, or the link will be in our show notes.
0: So like Catherine mentioned before, we're going to break this parts of the Caribbean storytelling series into at least two parts, potentially three parts. Today's focus is basically just going to be on the history and the timeline of how the things were set in motion to get this from concept to reality, to Pirates of the Caribbean opening in Disneyland. Subsequent parts to this, which we will release them in order, are going to be focusing on things like the music, the storytelling, the characters, updates that they did to the ride, so things like putting in Jack Sparrow, and then the different versions of the attraction all around the world. But today... It's just focused on that history, setting that foundation, because very similarly to Haunted Mansion, there are so, so many things at work and in play during this time period and so many different people having their input put in on this attraction that I really feel like we need to get a good basis and understanding before we move on to the meat, the story.
1: I completely agree. I do think with everything else that we've researched, the history behind the attraction itself and kind of understanding, like Brendan said, the timeline, who worked on it, what else was going on, gives you just a deeper appreciation for maybe the the detail or the, I don't know, just everything that encompasses the ride.
0: So a few other notes before we get started in this history is that we are planning on bringing you guys a ton of content this week. So tomorrow, Tuesday, we will be releasing our Loki mid-season review thought process, brain dump, whatever you want to call it, based on the first three episodes of Loki preparing for episode four to drop on Wednesday morning. Wednesday night is our live show with our friend Hannah, previously mentioned, where we are previewing the parks for July. You can catch that on Facebook or YouTube, and then the audio version of that will drop on Wednesday night as well. Thursday, we'll have part two of Pirates of the Caribbean. And also Thursday and Friday are big days on our YouTube because we just got back from Arizona and Utah trip where we visited the national parks. We're going to drop that vlog on Thursday. On Friday, we are doing a vlog on the Avengers Station, which is a cool little exhibit that we visited in Las Vegas before we flew back home. So lots of different things happening on that. And then on top of it, It's fireworks week in Walt Disney World. Fireworks officially return on Thursday, July 1st. So we will be in Epcot on Thursday, live streaming it on TikTok and Magic Kingdom on Friday, live streaming happily ever after.
1: Yeah. So lots going on. It'll be a busy week, but we're super excited, especially when it comes to YouTube, because that's something that we've talked about for a long time. And it's going to gear us up for July. So again, lots going on. But let's dive into Pirates of the Caribbean.
0: So let's talk about all the different versions first, just in their opening dates and kind of how that timeline stacks up. Like we previously mentioned, this episode is mainly just going to be focused on the Disneyland version. That version opened on March 18th, 1967. Next one to open was in Magic Kingdom. December 15th, 1973, April 15th, 1983 in Tokyo Disneyland opening day attraction, April 12th, 1992 in Disneyland Paris, also an opening day attraction, and then opening June 16th, 2016 in Shanghai Disneyland, also an opening day attraction. The Shanghai version, if you are familiar with it, is the most different of all of the different parts of the Caribbean attractions that you can find around the world, And it is mainly based on the movie more than this original timeline that we're going to talk about today, or storyline, I guess, is a better way of saying it.
1: Yeah. And there is one, if you were taking note, there's one park that was left out of all this, which is Hong Kong. And it is left out of Hong Kong for an interesting reason. It's kind of a sad but true reason, because they are a port city. They do have... Pirates, that would be a real threat to their current lives. So I guess it hits too close to home to make an attraction out of it. they
0: skipped over Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, it's something I would have never thought about before.
0: Yeah. So let's turn it back into the late 50s and late 60s. In this era, we've been talking about it quite a bit lately. We talked about it with the Enchanted Tiki Room. We talked about it with Haunted Mansion, throwing it back there. And then more recently with Country Bear Jamboree, it's all kind of happening in this decade from around 57, 58 up until 68, 69. And then we're going to talk a little bit about into the 70s as well. And it's sort of coincidence that we've been focusing on this era, but it's also sort of not because this is the era that I personally think is the most fascinating about Disney history, I don't know if you feel the same way.
1: Well, I think it's just so interesting because there were a lot of moving parts. I mean, you just mentioned a lot of big time attractions, very iconic things that when you mentioned Disneyland or Disney World, probably some of the first attractions to come to people's minds. And it is interesting to think that they were all kind of happening at the same time, that this is the era of the audio animatronics of starting to think about people eating and Omnimovers and how you can funnel people through different attractions. And of course this is the sad part of the history where this is kind of some of the last, the last things that Walt got to work on and we'll get into all that good stuff.
0: And I'll just add one more to the list. This is the era of telling story through music as well
1: which they've never gotten rid of. From this point on, I feel like music has been a staple.
0: So here's just some brief bullet points of some of the things going on during this timeline that we're talking about. This isn't everything, but these are just some of the high points and things that we're going to reference later. So the Enchanted Tiki Room opens in 1963. New York World's Fair in 1964 and 1965. They worked on that for about four to five years beforehand. Because it was such a big event and took so many resources to pull it off. So that includes Small World, Carousel of Progress, everything.
1: Lots of things that they did.
0: Big deal. They worked on Haunted Mansion in the early 60s into the late 60s. Worked on Pirates of the Caribbean in the same time frame, early 60s to late 60s. They're working on the Mineral King Ski Resort and subsequently the Country Bear Jamboree. Go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear all about that. And then... They're also working on the opening of Disney World in 1971. So there's all of these huge, gigantic projects that they're working on that are all kind of working around the same time frame. And then on top of that, very sadly, something that none of them knew at the time, but they're also racing against the clock for Walt's death. That would happen in December of 1966. So all along this time period, every single Imagineer or set designer or artist, everybody is working on at least three or four or upwards of a dozen different projects at a time. I can imagine this is a time period where the coffee consumption was through (laughs) the roof. It's a get there before the sun comes up and go home after the sun goes down type days.
1: If they go home sometimes they would stay i'm sure we even saw that you know in more recent imagineering things that we've seen on disney plus but yeah to me something that stands out is when you mentioned all of those you know we talked about mark davis and how he was inspired by these bears so i'm sure his desk was like a hodgepodge mess he's drawing bears he's drawing pirates he's thinking about ghosts he's you know, looking at the Enchanted Tiki Room and everything else that goes with it. And it is kind of funny, like how do you compartmentalize all of those things at once? It's just like a constant wheel of projects.
0: It's almost like you wonder if, all right, even days I'm working on these projects, odd days I'm working on these projects, or, you know, before lunch and after lunch, because I don't know. I don't know how you would multitask and keep all of these things. And the way that WED was set up was basically Walt would give you an assignment. You'd go off and work on it. You'd come back, submit it for his review. And we've talked about in the past, he doesn't really give glowing reviews of anything until you just absolutely nail it. So he's not really giving you solid feedback along the way. He just kind of, yeah, this is okay. That's okay. Keep working on it. And have you tried this? Yada, yada, yada. And, Something that happened with pirates that we can talk about a little bit later as well as a lot of times Mark and his team would be submitting their ideas to Walt, and it would be weeks before he got back to them. So they're just kind of in this limbo period of where do we stand? What are we supposed to be working on? It's a lot of kind of self-motivation, I think, has to drive you in that environment.
1: Yeah, there was something, There's like a little snippet that said some of these drawings or some of the concept ideas that he had went three to six months hanging on his wall. And every time Walt would walk into his office, he would just look at Mark, you know, direct eye contact, all the things that you would typically want, probably unless you are an artist who craves that, I don't know, approval. You want some sort of feedback, like you said. And he also mentioned That when you submitted something or that when you were trying to show something to Walt, you better not just have one idea or one option. Walt liked options. So in all of these different pirate designs that he had, I can only imagine how many he had truly because he didn't just want one version of one idea. He wanted several so that Walt had options because then that helped Walt make a decision. So yeah, too much multitasking for my brain to handle.
0: One little side note to kind of spin off of that point is if you remember back to our Country Bear Jamboree episode in episode number 286, if you haven't listened to that one, that was one of my favorite episodes that we've done. But we had this discussion about Mark Davis submitting these drawings to Walt, and it was the last conversation that they ever had. and his concepts for these country bears. And Walt was just like over the moon, happy, like a little kid pointing at him, laughing, you know, theorizing about what their personalities would be like. And I think you kind of have to take those two things hand in hand, where at that point, Walt knew that it was the end. And he kind of, you know, gave Mark that confirmation of that. I appreciate you, you know, we've worked together all these years And seeing how this pirates project went, where it was a lot of, you know, not really giving you much feedback and seeing the paradox between how he treated country bears, I think just makes it even more special.
1: So it is special. So we have the country bears. We have Pirates of the Caribbean. We know that both of these are simultaneously taking place along with the Haunted Mansion. So all of these Imagineers have these different projects going on. And that really embodies the fact that WED is growing rapidly. They have so much going on. And because of that, they've outgrown their building. So in the same time period in 1964 and 1965, right in the height of preparing for the World's Fair. Well,
0: wow, while it's going on?
1: So both. They decide that they need to move office buildings. So right now, their building was on... Sonora Avenue in Glendale, they needed to move to Flower Street and there they were given ample room. So it's a 130,000 square foot office space, lots of room for them to set up and, you know, show off their models, do everything that they need to do. And I think that's going to be super important moving forward because they do have these huge projects in the works.
0: And on top of that, there's kind of something that sparks that is that Wed Enterprises was also in the process of being purchased back by Walt Disney Productions. So I believe that was the Enchanted Tiki Room episode that we talked about, that Wed spun off and kind of became this own thing that Walt owned himself. And it's being reabsorbed by Walt Disney Productions at this time and becoming a division underneath the larger company, which is how it is still today but something that opened up the door for them to move offices but at the same time they decided that they were going to spin off a new division from Imagineering and call it MAPO M-A-P-O and it was created to serve as a production demand for the upcoming Walt Disney World project so basically WED had all of these creators and illustrators and artists and designers and MAPO was kind of the heavy lifting. They got this state of the art production facility and there they could work on the animatronics. They could work on set pieces in a more grand scale than WED could on their own, both in their previous space and just because they were were worked so thin based on everything that they were doing. And one of the first projects that Mapo and Wed worked on together was the Blue Bayou Boat Ride, which, of course, now we later know, changed to Pirates of the Caribbean.
1: Yeah, and in when we did talk about the Country Bear episode, we mentioned that when Walt had that last conversation with Mark, Mark was distracting him from the fact that the Pirates of the Caribbean stuff had basically already been packed up and moved because they were getting ready to set everything up. So they had nothing to show Walt, which is ultimately what he wanted to see. So again, it's just kind of highlighting how much Walt loved the Pirates of the Caribbean. And I think it shows how excited he was for it.
0: Kind of a quick aside to this time period where everything is going on and, you know, Walt died at the height a lot of major, major projects. And the perseverance of the company and all of the close people around him to be able to pick up the pieces and move forward, I think is something that cannot be undersold. The ability to even pull Walt Disney World off after that is just a gigantic credit. Even the fact that Haunted Mansion and Pirates were able to open without his final direction and final sign-offs, I think is truly remarkable. And I think it's a huge pivotal moment to the Walt Disney Company. So you look at his brother Roy being able to step in and continue his brother legacy. Talk about Mark Davis and Alice Davis, Rolly Crump, Ken Anderson, all of these pivotal, pivotal people that Walt leaned on heavily It's almost like he was preparing them to enter into this next chapter. And if they were not able to persevere, would we have gotten any of these things? Would we have gotten, you know, Walt Disney World or these classic attractions? Probably not.
1: Probably not. And I think that just goes to show how inspiring Walt was for them and, you know, probably the confidence that he did give them, you know, even though they, it seemed like they always searched for his approval. They were also pretty confident in their abilities. And I think they knew what Walt wanted, you know, in the back of their minds, they always knew what was going to make him happy. So I think still kind of having that vision moving forward, even without him allowed them to still be successful.
0: And one little tidbit, which we shared it on our Instagram the other day, but I didn't know this before. Did you know that Walt Disney World was originally just going to be Disney World and Roy changed it to Walt Disney World in order to honor his brother's passing?
1: I never even thought about that, no, which is so sweet because if you think about our siblings, like, would they do that for us? You know, I don't know. it's a sweet tribute. And I think. Again, that just goes to show they were obviously very close, but I think Roy also really understood how important the Florida Project was for Walt.
0: And I also think it, it is nice to still see in traditions today that cast members always call it Walt Disney World. You won't hear a cast member say Disney World or WDW, like they say, the full name, Walt Disney World Resort. And I think that's important that we keep that.
1: It is. So on that same note, this was the last attraction that Walt Disney had his personal involvement in the design. I guess it's hard to say if this was the last one, because we did talk about country bears. We did talk about haunted mansion. So of course he had his hand in everything, but this was truly one of the last that had his personal involvement in. And this ride is significant, I think, for that reason, because there's a lot to the story. So, this is where we kind of jump in to the backside of everything.
0: So, we haven't done our carousel of progress episode yet, but this ride kind of has a pivotal moment around the carousel of progress. In the 1964 World's Fair, they debuted the Carousel of Progress, and specifically that's where they debuted these audio animatronics, and they were a massive, massive success. And so it was a pivotal moment because back in California, they were working on these two attraction ideas. One was ghost haunted house themed, and one was pirate themed, and they were going to have them both be walkthrough attractions. And... They were going to be like a wax museum was really the idea for the Pirates themed attraction. There was even an idea at one point to have the two attractions linked together where you would experience one after the other, basically walking between the two of them. But based on the success of the audio animatronics, everything changed and changed how they wanted to portray these attractions that they had been kicking around where Pirates has its first mention in 1957, so it was a long-standing idea of something that Walt wanted to do.
1: Well, and it was kind of fortunate that this was one that kind of took a back seat when the World's Fair was going on, because if they would have moved forward with Pirates before they would have gotten to the World's Fair, there's a chance that we would have gotten the walkthrough wax museum. And that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, or you know what would they have done from that point moving forward so it's interesting that there the timeline for this attraction is quite long, but I think everything worked out the way that it needed to and because of the popularity of the audio animatronics, they were able to completely pivot what they wanted to do
0: so the question that's kind of been unanswered up to this point, is why is it a pirate-themed ride? Why did Walt even want to do something like that? And the answer is New Orleans Square. So New Orleans Square was the last major project overseen by Walt Disney, which he saw actually come to life. We know that. Pirates, Haunted Mansion, all came after his death. And New Orleans Square officially opened on July 24th, 1966, just five months before Walt passed away in December. This was the first expansion to Disneyland after the original five lands, Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, Tomorrowland, and Main Street USA, opened 11 years earlier in 1955. So if any of you or have pictures or if you've looked up the history of this New Orleans Square area that connects Frontierland, that co- you know, that it connects to Frontierland, they always had these kind of French Quarter-themed buildings, but it wasn't its own land until 11 years later.
1: Which is interesting because Walt did always have a love for New Orleans, and then that starts to beg the question, well, why did Walt love New Orleans? And, you know, if I think about New Orleans, the best thing there is the food. They have a pretty cool culture, but the food hits the nail on the head. Don't you agree? You've been.
0: I have, and I would agree. That's probably the number one thing that Walt fell in love with. And on top of that, New Orleans was a place where Walt went to escape and to let his creativity flow. I couldn't find an exact number of how many times he went to New Orleans, but it was more than once. And New Orleans was a place where a lot of, you know, kind of sparks ignited for him. This was the place where he went into an antique shop and found the mechanical bird in a cage that led to the Enchanted Tiki Room. And this was a place where he briefly considered actually opening up Disney World before he decided on Orlando.
1: I feel like we have to take a minute and talk about this because that just seems bizarre. I mean, New Orleans, can you imagine a Big theme park like Disney World in New Orleans.
0: Now I know Orlando doesn't have the world's best weather. But every time I've been to New Orleans, you got mosquitoes as big as your head. <laughs> You've got it I mean, it is I know Orlando's a swamp. New Orleans is truly a swamp.
1: Yeah, I mean they are neck and neck, I guess, when it comes to swampland. But I do have to imagine that Finding land around New Orleans, not just in Louisiana, but like close to New Orleans, would have been a stretch.
0: Probably so. I don't know what the real estate market's looking like down there, but I think Orlando, those orange groves were a lot more wide open.
1: Probably so. Probably more flat. Not necessarily less wet, but maybe a better fit.
0: So this was always a culture and a location that Walt felt like other people needed to enjoy and that led him to want to develop New Orleans Square. So it all came to be and he designed this after the French Quarter area of New Orleans and the grand opening of this land was amazing. Walt arranged for the mayor of New Orleans, Victor Shiro, to be there. And at the dedication, they served a celebratory meal of shrimp rémoulade, gumbo, croissants and a flaming dessert. A shocking lack of beignets.
1: I know what no beignets, no mint juleps, but maybe that tells us that that's what Walt liked to eat. Cuz surely he had like the deciding stamp on what to eat. So he must be a gumbo guy.
0: One funny little excerpt from the book that we used to research all this stuff was that the mayor was so impressed, and he went up to Walt, and he was saying, man, this looks just like the real French Quarter back home. And Walt turned to him and said, yeah, but my version is cleaner, which we kind of poke fun. We both <laughs> we both went to New Orleans on separate trips. We didn't go together, and we both came back thinking, like, kind of dirty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, in all fairness, if you're from this area, All downtown areas are dirty. I say the same thing about Nashville all the time. I'm not a big downtown Nashville fan if you go to the wrong place because it's just dirty. And smelly. And smelly. I'm sure Orlando is the same. But you do have to be a little honest with yourself. New Orleans Square is pretty smelly. Kind of dirty. Little sketch. That's, That's the charm of it all. Partially. That is funny.
0: And the city of New Orleans took very kindly to this honor. There were all kinds of articles and newspaper clippings that I was able to read basically saying that Walt Disney gives the highest honor to our city, you know, bringing the New Orleans culture to Disneyland for the world to enjoy all kinds of, you know, they were very, very happy with how he was able to portray this portion of New Orleans.
1: Well, you have to think it's probably very similar to why these countries were so excited to be part of Epcot in the World Showcase is it's going to potentially increase tourism. It's going to make people want to visit the real New Orleans, right? Because if the food at Disney is great, well the real deal has to be better. You know, the beignets must be better at the real New Orleans or You know, this is just a small snippet of what the real French Quarter might look like. So I think, you know, not only is it probably an honor for Walt to just love your city and to put it into his theme park, but I do think it probably, we'd have to look at the statistics, but it potentially increased their own tourism.
0: I think that's fair. I mean, it makes, when I went to New Orleans, I was thinking the same thing, like, you know, I know the food in Disneyland in this area is great, so it has to be wonderful here. I did not go to Cafe DuMont when I went, though. You I did. did. How do the beignets compare?
1: So I've only had the Disneyland beignets once and they were pretty good. Obviously, they're good. They're Mickey shaped. But Cafe Dumont is its own, like there's almost so much powdered sugar that you can't really breathe when you eat it (laughs) or you're gonna like choke on yourself a little bit. It's quite a mess. They give you the flimsiest little cheapest napkins in the world, but I mean, it is fun. And you get the same feeling in New Orleans Square where everything is super tight. I'll say that's probably the tightest and busiest seating area I've ever been in in my life where you are literally sitting on top of somebody else.
0: Worse than the pop century. Food court.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you are, you know, side by side with someone. And I think the New Orleans Square in Disneyland kind of gives you that same feel. It is quite small. It's not a huge area. At least, I don't know, the one time I've been there, it didn't feel, you know, huge and expansive. So I feel like that was intentional.
0: Yeah. A couple of other notes about New Orleans Square and then we'll move on. Is that Mark Davis did do most of the artist and concept work for these lands, for the French market, for the restaurants, everything. He's just he's just the best.
1: We do love him. Clearly, we bought his books. We do love him.
0: But you should, if you ever get the chance, we mentioned this book in the Country Bear Jamboree X episode, and go find the link to it in the show notes. There, and I'll put it in the show notes here as well. But just his artist renderings are so fantastic of this area and everything that he was able to imagine. And this, like you said, a very, very tight space, but still give it that French Quarter feel of, like, what's around this corner, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. And And, of course, the forced perspective, which we know that Disney is so good at, that played a huge role in his designs. It shows different pictures of that and kind of how... He thought through those things. How do you make a three-story building not actually a three-story building um, but still give it that same feel? So you know, obviously a lot went into it.
0: So let's move on. So when Wall decided to move forward with the New Orleans Square project, he knew that he was going to do this Pirates attraction and a Haunted House attraction. For the Pirates attraction, well and honestly the haunted house attraction as well. (laughs) He tabbed Mark Davis to officially be the lead artist and art director to bring the idea to life. He assembled the small little team, including Ken O'Connor and later Colin Campbell from wed joined Mark in trying to map out what the storyline, what the characters, what the inspiration for all of this would be for at the time, what the thought would be the wax museum Idea.
1: So when we think about the research that Mark had to do, he basically went and just started scouring for books. So you kind of have to put yourself into a different frame of mind when you think about this research, that there weren't tons of depictions out there. Really, the main depictions that Mark was able to find were illustrated by Howard Pyle which ironically is the author of the merry adventures of robin hood so he basically started looking at these different depictions and reading factual books about pirates he wanted to know what kind of things did pirates actually get into what kind of you know battles or mischief or what were they known for what did the daily life of a pirate look like which must have been just the most fun research, I feel like, to do, ever.
0: And he kind of put all of his research into two different piles, kind of this cartoonish depiction of pirates, which is mostly attributed to Howard Pyle. You know, so the long capes. Capes isn't the right word, but...
1: Like the coats?
0: Yeah, the long coats, the swords, the everything along with that. And then the actual factual information about pirates, where they're gruesome. They're nasty. They're kind of like Vikings, where there's the kind of nice depiction of Vikings, but we know in real life they are horrible, nasty, vile. Pirates are kind of the same way, and so obviously Mark went with the more cartoonish depiction and more family-friendly depiction of pirates.
1: I don't know. that You can go either way with that. Obviously, he stuck to his true character where he gave them little gags and little side stories. And he does make it family friendly and fun, but you can kind of still see in the background, some of the true, I don't know, like the dirty kind of mischief, mean parts of the pirates too. Because not everything that you see in Pirates of the Caribbean is super family friendly.
0: That is true. And I mean, the most obvious scene that we will look for, and we'll talk about this in the next part more in depth, but there was even, you know, notes going back and forth between Walt and Mark talking about the auctioneer scene, saying, is this Disney? Is this really what we want to depict? Obviously, we know that they chose to go forward with it. That decision has since been reversed. But it's kind of crazy to think about. Even in the 60s, they were talking about, should we do this? It's kind of pushing the edge. And they made a decision. They reversed it later. But we can also read some of Mark Davis's notes on this research that he was doing. And here's a excerpt where he was talking about kind of what he imagined the Wax Museum characters would look like and how it would go through. So I'll read it and then we'll explain it. He said, Each pirate tells his own story, how he was the dirtiest, rottenest pirate of all, and shows a scene of his lowest deed to prove it. In turn, each narrator depreciates the pirate who preceded him. And so, if you can imagine, basically you're walking from scene to scene he set up these boxes, which you can kind of view as, I don't know, like a glass exhibit box where there would be this wax figure inside with a narration voice talking to you. And then, off on one side or the other of this wax figure, is the scene that they're describing coming to life. So, this is where you can kind of see maybe some wax they probably shifted pretty quickly to say, all right, let's do audio animatronics here and have this still be a walkthrough attraction. But I thought that was kind of cool of how it was. You know, it starts kind of vile, and it gets worse and worse and more rotten and more nasty as you go on.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of the early renderings that Mark had included, you know, pirates who were being like hung up in chains, kind of to base off of, oh, there was a real pirate. I don't remember his name. But, you know, he was trying to mimic what these pirates' history actually looked like. So, of course, there were a lot of not-so-family-friendly things in there, lots of drinking, which we still see in the Pirates of the Caribbean that we have today. But one of the discoveries that he actually made – which I found super interesting, was that most of these pirate battles did not actually happen on sea. So that kind of, I think, flipped his world upside down a little bit. Of course, we still get to see it because that's more fun, is ultimately what he decided. But that was something that he kind of had to wrestle with, is do we make it realistic or do we fantasize it a little bit more?
0: And one of his other discoveries was that most pirates didn't die in battle. Most it, of them died to disease because they were so nasty.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which we see, too. You get, like, the pirate in the pig pen and things like that in the actual version.
0: Are you saying he's dying?
1: No, I'm just saying you get to see that they're dirty. They're definitely not concerned with cleanliness.
0: So I thought it was interesting that the very next page, after that excerpt of him talking about how you take him through and each pirate one-ups the pirate that was before them, he wrote down a phrase that would stick forever. He wrote down, dead men tell no tales. Which, how iconic.
1: That has got, yeah. I mean, if you think about pirates, that has got to be one of the first things that you think about. And it's crazy that that came from him. He didn't steal that from someone else. He didn't find it in a book. It wasn't written down in some pirate history. That came purely from his mind. I mean, how creative do you have to be? Very. It's crazy.
0: So kind of one last conversation I want to have about Mark Davis and then we'll transition back and talk more about Walt and his involvement in this is I just want you know based on all this research that we've done i feel like both of us have a pretty good idea of who mark davis is but we haven't necessarily shared that on the podcast and i do think it's it's so worthy of a read if you want to go back and read his biography but basically mark grew up in this family that moved constantly he self described his dad as a rainbow chaser which more or less was basically a guy who was constantly searching for the next best thing. He was constantly switching jobs. He thought this move would be better. And so by the time it was all said and done, Mark had attended 22 different schools by the time he he finished high school. And so that was tough for him as a child. And so his escapism was illustration and storytelling. And so he would doodle and he would draw and he would make up these fantasy stories as a way to escape from the bullying and the not fitting in and the constant moving and not having, you know, the social network that anybody is looking for. So I think that is something I'm trying to keep in mind, that when you go on Haunted Mansion or Pirates or Country Bears the next time, these are almost love letters that Mark wrote to the art of storytelling.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that. So that is an interesting, I mean, I guess it kind of goes back to the dead men tell no tales. How is someone able to come up with that? If he had a lifetime of storytelling and coping and reworking different things to kind of get through, it makes sense that his imagination would just be never ceasing.
0: So let's talk about all of the things that got put in place that changed it from the wax museum to the boat ride that we now know. So the audio animatronic success of Carousel of Progress had a lot to do with it. The other thing that was very successful was the It's a Small World boat ride, and the other would be the original music in the Enchanted Tiki Room. So you can kind of view this as a mesh of all of those different things at work. Walt kind of took the highlights of all of those. The It's a Small World ride vehicle, the animatronics from Carousel of Progress, the music from Tiki Room, and wanted to mash those together in order to make Pirates of the Caribbean. But it almost wasn't to be. Mark and Walt and the team had been working on this for so long in the late 50s. Walt had approved the construction of the Wax Museum in the fall of 1961, and he wanted it to turn around quick and open in the summer of 1962. But thankfully, at the same time, the Tiki Room and the Jungle Cruise had taken up too many resources, and the Wax Museum was tabled for the time period. Then right after that, they get caught up in the New York World's Fair, and so they ultimately have to come back to working on the Pirate's Ride in 1964.
1: So when they kind of circled back to everything, this is where they ultimately realized that this boat attraction is most likely going to be able to carry more guests than just a walkthrough attraction. It's going to be a grander scale. Again, they realized with the small world that these boats were easy to load and unload. They could move through quickly. It was pretty, I guess, effortless And it's almost like a people eater, which is similar to what we saw with Haunted Mansion. They decided to go in a different route because at the end of the day, it is a theme park. And you have to think about how can you disperse people around the park? How many people can you get through in a day? And instead of just walking from one point to the next point and having to listen to these narrations, if it's just constantly moving you get more people through. So it just kind of made sense.
0: Yeah. And I think there's an interesting quote about Walt, his original idea for this attraction. He said, in here we have a special attraction. We call it the Blue Bayou Lagoon. And people are going to get on a boat here and ride through the lagoon. And then as they get around here, we're going to take them down a waterfall and take them back into the past, into the days of pirates, you know, when the whole Caribbean was full of pirates and they were sacking towns and things. First of all, I now see that both you and Walt really developed your vocabulary in the Midwest by saying, you know, you
1: know. <laughs> I do say, you know, a lot.
0: I guess that's your Kansas roots.
1: Yes. Thank you, Kansas.
0: So he said that in 1963. And so you can kind of hear that it's, it's kind of a grand ride, but there's not too, too much to it in his description. But over the course of the next year, Walt and Mark would add so many scenes and so much to this attraction that it would require a second show building.
1: Which, oh my goodness, talk about just something that you must feel so passionate about that you have to double your space, basically, and kind of abandon everything that you originally thought. I mean, that's a big deal. They had to go in and structurally rework the area. They had to build more. And in Disneyland, we all know, they don't have a lot of room. So to give that room to Pirates of the Caribbean, again, just shows kind of how important this was.
0: So all of this leads up to... We're now at a point where they have their space to work with. They have their concept for the ride, and now it's time to execute. Mark had all of these character concept drawings they'd been working on for years at this point. He had stories in his notes. He had started to think of the overall theme and layout and scenes to place them in, and that's where we will pick up in part two.
1: So this was part one, like Brendan mentioned, We have so much more to cover, and we absolutely cannot wait to get into the meat of everything, which is, of course, storytelling. So really taking the history and the background that we talked about today and turning that into what we see as the final product. How did Mark mash all these things together? Where did his ideas come from? What kind of blunders and funny stories happened along the way? And... We're excited. So that'll be later this week.
0: Yep. So I hope you can join us then. hope you can join us for all the other things that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok to stay up to date and all that. I know we're asking a lot, but we think it's going to be a lot of fun. We'd love to have you join us for all of those. And then our live show on Wednesday night as well. So thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back on Thursday for part two. Hope you are having a great week.